Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And we welcome you to our Sunday morning Bible class here in our gymnasium. We welcome those who are here in person. And for those who are here in person, there are Bibles available up on a cart here in the front. We also welcome those joining us in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM. And we welcome those joining us online at KFUO.org. Those listening on the radio, you'll hear a little conversation going on in the background. We've had a reception here. It's kind of a special day for us here today at St. Paul's and that we are giving thanks to God for the 47 years of service that Dr. Mark Bender has rendered as a teacher and minister of music and 30 of those years here in our midst. So we've had a reception taking place in our gymnasium right before this Bible class. And we'll have a luncheon following our 11 o'clock service in here as well. So kind of a busy and uh, yet very joy-filled day here as we look back on all of God's blessings through Dr. Bender over all of these years. We're going to be picking up. We left off last week, and we'll, we are in Luke chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 27, but before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings to us, those you shower down upon us each and every day, how unmerited we are of your love and of all your goodness. We thank you, though, especially for the gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for his taking our place on the cross and earning for us there the forgiveness of all of our sin. And we thank you also for your word and all that you reveal to us in that word, we pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon us today as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke and especially looking today at the ministry of your Son on our behalf. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. All right, I wanted to show you, we're going to start, as I said, Luke 5, verse 27, but there's a pattern that we're going to see start here in Luke, and actually we've already seen the beginnings of it. It goes something like this. Jesus forgives sins or and or heals somebody. Remember last week, he healed the paralytic, but also pronounced that that paralytic's sins were forgiven. And remember, that got the Pharisees all upset because only God can forgive sins, to which we would say, yes, that's correct. And he is God right there in front of you. Uh, so that's the first thing that's going to happen. Then the pattern is right after that, Jesus will have a ministry to outcasts. And we're going to see today, he is going to be eating with tax collectors. And the Pharisees aren't going to be happy about that either. And then there's going to be, so there's going to be controversy with the Pharisees and others. And we'll see that, as I said today, that Jesus would dare eat with tax collectors. Let me show you another instance of this. If uh, you turn in your Bible... Lost my microphone here. Keep your uh, finger where it's at in Luke 5. But if you would turn just to Luke 15 and verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15, we'll see the same thing, again, the same pattern here in Luke. We don't even have to leave the Gospel of Luke for this. But Luke 15, and all we need to do is look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Okay? Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear him, 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And there we see it. Same thing we're going to see today. So this is a recurring theme that Jesus would dare to associate with known sinners and even eat with them. And eating with people in Bible times was different than eating with people today. It, it signified that you were one with them. In fact, many times you were dipping into the same bowl, your bread into the same bowl. But it, it signified that you had uh, a unity with them. And who is Jesus identifying with? Sinners. That's the point, isn't it? And we're going to see today he makes that point. And ultimately, we'll see as we get to the end of the gospel that Jesus even establishes a meal that's just for sinners, doesn't he? A meal that we partake of, I hope, often. A meal just for sinners, like us. So, okay, this is the pattern, so kind of keep this in mind as we move through. We're going to see it today. So 15, verse 27 and I'll just read 27 first of all, and then we'll go back we'll talk a little bit about some of these things. After this, he, now after this would have been healing the paralytic and pronouncing his sins are forgiven, as we ended up last week. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now that word for saw means more than he just kind of got a glimpse of him. It means he was actually looking at him and kind of studying him. Okay? So Jesus is kind of studying this guy standing there by the name of Levi. And we know from Mark's Gospel that this Levi is also the disciple Matthew. Correct. Matthew. Uh, son of a guy named Alphaeus. I don't know why. It, it was not uncommon at that time, I'll say this, to have more than one name. We're going to see this again when we get to the names of the disciples. But this is, this is none other than Matthew, and he is sitting at a tax booth. Now, it's not surprising that Jesus is starting to get followers at this point, but it's interesting, and it's kind of surprising, that here one of the first ones he's calling to be more than just a follower but a disciple is a guy who is a tax collector. And there was a major trade highway. We think we're still around the city of Capernaum. There was a major trade highway that went right by Capernaum. It was used by people who were coming from Damascus and were going west or southwest. And the tax collectors set up, as Matthew did here, a booth along the side of the road. And you would have to pay import and export taxes as you came and went in this area. I think maybe the closest thing we have to it, and I haven't been to Chicago in quite some time now, but I remember when I would go there, it seemed like every couple of miles you got what? On the highway. Toll booth, exactly. <laughs> and that's the closest thing I can liken it to. They literally were by the side of the road. And I think I mentioned before that the the franchise, I guess you would say, for collecting taxes in a given area was up for sale. It went to the highest bidder. And then this person, this chief tax collector, would hire other tax collectors, or sometimes you'll see them called publicans in the, in the scriptures. 
They were the ones who actually collected the taxes, you know, face-to-face -face with you there. And that's what this guy, Levi, or Matthew, is doing when Jesus comes and studies him, looks at him, contemplates him. Okay? And tax collectors at that time uh, did not have the best of reputations. It seems like the people were unclear a little bit as to how much they should actually be paying in taxes and always felt like they were getting swindled. Whether it was true or not, they certainly felt that way. In fact, the Jews felt that no good religious um, Jew should be serving as a tax collector. So that's kind of the reputation they had back at that time. And who is Jesus going to call to come after him but a tax collector? Not one of the religious, not one of the Pharisees, not one of the Sadducees. It's going to be a tax collector. Okay? So, he says to him, he simply comes by him as booth on the side of the road and says, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, a couple things here. We think that Matthew probably heard Jesus teaching prior to this. This wasn't the first time. And secondly, we think he was probably responsible and notified the proper people that, hey, I'm, I'm going to be, the booth is going to be empty. You know, <laughs> get somebody else down here. But he, he picks up and leaves everything behind, probably a lucrative, for him personally also, business position behind, and follows Jesus. And we're going to see in a moment, uh, look at the very next verse. And Levi, or Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. You don't make somebody a great feast in your house, you don't have considerable means, right? The sumptuous feast that Matthew made for Jesus in his, in Matthew's house. And there, were, there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. I want to stop here just for a moment. There is an evangelism principle here that we see at work, and I don't want to fly over it. Who is the most effective link to other tax collectors in this case? The, for, the ta former tax collector now, who is now a disciple of Jesus, right? The most effective people to reach out to other non-Christians are, many times, new Christians who still have many, many connections out there with friends, relatives, others, who are non-Christians. I'll tell you this, pastors don't run into nearly as many non-Christians as we do Christians on a day-to-day -day basis because of what we do and the people we ordinarily interact with. It's others, all of you certainly, but, but especially I'm thinking in this case of, of this principle that think of what's happened here. Matthew has become a Christian, and what has he done? He's invited all of his friends, who we probably are not, we don't think, have any reason to believe are Christians yet, to meet this Jesus and to eat with him and, and certainly talk with him and probably hear him teach. What a great principle that is, right? And we see that happen sometimes in our churches when someone comes through one of our new member classes they still have many other connections out there who are not Christian at this point. And again, can be the most effective people 
in reaching out and just, just nothing else, just inviting them to come to church. Try it out some, sometime. So I didn't want to fly past that, but there's this big that's taking place in Matthew's house here with a bunch of tax collectors. Here comes the opposition. And the Pharisees and their scribes. Now remember last week I said the Pharisees are lay people. They are not clergy. They are lay people. They, had, they started, we think, about two centuries before Christ. They had a good purpose when they began. They were trying to keep the Jewish religion pure and keep it from being infiltrated with a bunch of Greek thinking and Greek influences. So they had a good beginning, you might say, or a good, good reason for starting. But by the time of Jesus, it had gotten to be such a legalistic, keep everything pure by keeping all the rules and regulations. And the trouble is, we would say they went beyond what the Word of God was teaching. They went, for example, with the law, the, the commandments and the other laws of God given in the Scriptures, to that they added about, it was 613 other rules and regulations. We would say man-made regulations that they called a fence around the law. And the, the purpose of this fence was, if you, if you kept those 613, you wouldn't come close to breaking the law. It was like a protective fence around the law, and especially when it came to what you could do and not do on the Sabbath day. And we're going to see coming up two in a row that the Pharisees are going to get all hot and bothered with Jesus about what he does on the Sabbath day, two different Sabbaths. But in this case, they're mad. They're grumbling again, just like we saw in Luke 15, Grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And the you there is plural, so they're probably meaning not only Jesus, but his disciples also. Why do you associate with them? Now, what's wrong with what they're asking here? What is so sad about what they are asking him here? As the religious leaders of the day, what's so sad about what they're asking him? Why... In other words, the question, why are you associating with sinful people? Yes, they don't know that not only are these people sinful, but they are too. But they will say, if you were to ask them, they have no need of repentance. Remember we were talking about John the Baptist and his message of repent? And unfortunately, they would see no need. They have Abraham as their father. They've never been enslaved to anybody. And they didn't realize that they too were sinners. Another thing, wouldn't that be... The place where, you know, in Luke 15, I, that we read earlier, right after it says that they were murmuring and grumbling, Jesus tells three parables. They're all about something that is lost and something that is found. That's why Luke 15 is called the lost and found chapter. And we got the woman who loses a coin and sweeps her house, finds it, calls her neighbors up, they come over and they rejoice. Okay? You've got the guy who finds uh, a treasure in his field and sells everything he has to buy the field and, again, has great rejoicing with his neighbors. And then you've got the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Actually, lost sons, I think we should say, where the son goes away, takes his inheritance, squanders it, comes back. And what's the reaction of the father when his wayward son comes back? He runs out to meet him, puts his arms around him, uh, says, says the, the best robe should be put on him, uh, kill the fattened calf, we're going to have a party because 
And as he tells the other, this son who was lost is now found. Well, what's Jesus trying to do with those three parables? Say that there should be rejoicing when those who are lost, namely the sinners, are found, right? That's what he's trying to get them to see, but they could not see that. They would rather keep arm's distance from anybody they perceive to be a sinner than to engage with them and tell them, if they would have heard it themselves, the good news of Jesus and what he had come to do. Yes, here. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, they automatically exclude a whole bunches of people that, again, they put in the category tax collectors and other sinners. Yeah. And so, again, a thing that, a thing that they just couldn't get, and we have to remember, too, is Jesus came to save sinners, <laughs> including us, right? All people, all people, okay? So, you know, why, why do you, plural, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In a way, he's kind of telling them that, you know, they thought they were well. They thought they were in no need of a physician, but in fact they were. But Jesus is saying, I came for those who need a physician, for those who are sick. In other words, for sinners. The only problem is they didn't realize they too were in need of Jesus. They, they just didn't realize it. They thought they were above it all. Okay, And so he's, he's in a way almost almost telling them something they want to hear here, but in another way, it's, it's sadly ironic because they could not see that they were in need of repentance and they were sinners as well, even excluding people instead of being overjoyed when sinners are repenting and coming to Jesus. Okay? Let me stop there for a moment. Any comments, questions? Bud? Yeah. Yeah, Bud's comment was, isn't, isn't that or can't that be also a, a challenge, a problem that we have? Yeah. I don't know about uh, if that's true for you, what I said before, about uh, that as pastors, we don't, uh, just by our <laughs> daily routines, we don't run into a lot of as many sinners daily by far. Or I should say, let's put it this way, we're all sinners. Uh, Non-Christians, okay, non-Christians. As I think everybody, all the lay people in the, in the world, but when you stop and think about it, when you're a Christian, don't you start kind of associating with other Christians and not so much with non-Christians? I don't know. Do you think that's true or not? Absolutely. Okay, all right. Especially when you retire. Okay, I'll, I'll have to see about that someday. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, okay, I see what you're saying. You don't, you don't go to an office anymore where there are a whole bunch of people that are non-Christians. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. What's that? And you do come here. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully we're, we're all Christians here. That's, that's a very good point. And see, that goes back to what I was saying before, that, again, the people who are newer Christians still have a lot of associations with others who are non-Christian. But what happens when they're in the church longer and longer and longer and longer? They start making more and more and more Christian friends, right? So again, this is that beautiful principle here that Matthew, as a now former tax collector, 
is the most effective one to reach out to all these tax collectors he's got in his house for this feast with Jesus. So, yeah, good point. It, we, we see that in our lives as well. I'm, 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 it's interesting you do as well. Any other comments or questions before we move on? Yes, Carla. Yes. Yes, how can they believe if they have not heard, right? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? That's Romans 10, so that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And in this case, isn't this interesting that Matthew is sort of the lifeline, isn't he? To the, all these tax collectors, you know. He's maybe the only line they've got, at this point at least, to hear about Jesus. And so you think about, you know, that role in our lives as well. Do we know people that, you know, we might be one of the very few people that in their life who can actually tell them the good news of the gospel, that they're surrounded by many other people who are not Christians, and so they're not going to hear it from them. And I'll just, I don't want to get too far afield here, but that's why whenever we do a wedding here at St. Paul's, and certainly when we do a funeral here at St. Paul's, we realize that we, in, in those services, are going to have a lot of people out there in the pews who may well not be Christians, but they are here because they're a relative of the deceased or they're a friend of the family, or in the case of a wedding, again, they know the family and they're here in that regard. So that is why we never fail to preach Christ at, at weddings, obviously it's, it's obvious at funerals, but we, I often say that how many times in somebody's life will they have the opportunity to hear the pure gospel, you know? It's like Jesus when he went around saying the kingdom of God is near. You know, there's, there's, there's an urgency with it. How many more times will they hear about Jesus in their life? And so, again, we take that, we take that very seriously. Okay? All right. Anything else? Good comments, good questions. All right, let's move on then. Now, we're going to talk about fasting. And uh, it's interesting that now, the, you can see the opposition starting to mount here, okay? Especially with the Pharisees, but now, uh, even, in, even in other circles as well. Uh, so, uh, verse uh, 33. And they said to him, this is again the Pharisees, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, who's the John that they're talking about here? The disciples of John would be the disciples of John the Baptist, right? Or I would say the baptizer. Sometimes people think he was the first Baptist, but no, that's not true. John the baptizer, his disciples, apparently were fasting quite a bit. Now, let's, let's be sure we understand. When we're talking about fasting... We're talking about, uh, there are different models, different practices, but we're talking about abstaining from food for a period of time, and that period of time can, can vary. And uh, some, I, I don't recommend this, I think you need to stay hydrated, but some people even don't consume anything. Again, I don't think that's really healthy. It's interesting, when you read in the Old Testament, there's only one day that fasting is prescribed at all in the Old Testament, and that is on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, and it is just for that one day, it's in Leviticus 16.29, we won't look it up now, but 
then by the time we get to the New Testament, the Pharisees, the Pharisees in particular, are fasting quite a bit. They, they would, most of them, the real rigid ones, would fast two days a week. They would fast on Thursdays because it was thought that that was the day that Moses went up on Mount Sinai, the day of the week Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and, and visit with God and so on. And then they would fast again on Mondays because the tradition said that's the day that Moses came down from Mount Sinai. So they're fasting two days a week. Now, by the way, don't bet the farm on that. That's just their tradition and whether that actually was the case or not. But that formed their practice. That understanding formed their practice that they were fasting two days a week. And Jesus, or I'm um, sorry, John the Baptist's disciples apparently were fasting more often. And we won't look at it, but actually in this crowd were actually some disciples of John the Baptist also. They were there with the Pharisees as well. That's, if you want to look it up later, Matthew 9, 14 to 17. That they were in, amongst these, these Pharisees asking this question. So what are they implying by asking that question? John the Baptist's disciples fast. The Pharisees fast. How come your disciples don't fast, Jesus? What are they, what, what's the implication behind that? Behind that? So, Jesus, you're, you're, uh, just go ahead and eat and drink. So what's, what's the implication? What are they trying to kind of say without saying here, do you think? You're not doing it right? Yeah, yeah. What's that? Going against the law? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, yeah, you're not measuring up. You're not, you're not, you're not as pious as we are, right? You're not, you're not, you're not as, as uh, dedicated as we are, Right? Now, I think, you know, let me ask you this. While we're talking about fasting, what, what do Lutherans think about fasting? We ever, we ever uh, emphasize fasting? Not really. <laughs> not really. <laughs> what, all right, let me just add. It's not that we are opposed to fasting. I don't want anybody on the radio to think that we're opposed to fasting. If people want to fast, that's fine. But, but let's just talk, what is the purpose of fasting? What is fasting? Not, not to put on a show. But what is fasting supposed to do if, if it's just a private thing that you are doing? You don't put a sign on your forehead to say, you know, look at me, I'm fasting. But what is fasting supposed to do? You, you get a hunger, you feel a hunger, and that hunger helps you to do what? Perhaps focus on not your own bodily needs, right, but on the suffering of Christ the pain that he endured, uh, keeping us from focusing on just the, you know, filling our own stomachs. Now, like I said, there's nothing wrong with fasting. If a person wants to fast, go right ahead and fast. That's, that's in there are books out there on it. It is, a, it is a fine spiritual practice, but it's not something that we say you must do, like the Pharisees were implying here and the disciples of John. We have to be careful that we don't, as Jesus says, practice our righteousness before men, right? That we make a big show of it. And like, the, like they were implying here, I guess we're better than Jesus' disciples because, look at we fast the way we do. And so we would not uh, say that somebody is either better or worse as a result of whether they're fasting or not fasting, okay? 
And there are all kinds of practices like that that we have to be very careful that we don't sort of place ourselves up on a pedestal when we're doing them thinking that we're better than somebody else. There's another one I just thought of that's kind of close to fasting. It occurs during a 40-day period of the, of, the, of the year. Lent, okay, and what is it? Giving up something for Lent, right? Now, that's all fine because it serves the same purpose. You have that desire and it causes you to remember that we're giving that up so that, that we can focus on Christ and his sacrifice. But I have heard, I've seen people you know, making a big thing and making it really well known that they're giving up chocolate or they're giving up beer or whatever it is for Lent. And again, we've got to be careful that we don't take on almost a self-righteous uh, stance or think we're better, spiritually superior to others, because we're giving something up. And that clearly was the implication here that uh, the, the Pharisees and some of the disciples of John, you know, they, they fast and, and often and offer prayers, and you, you guys just eat and drink. So verse 34, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Oh. So he's making a comparison. Now, let's just, on the surface of it, do that level one first. Uh, do we normally have a fasting associated with a wedding? <laughs> I guess the, the bride's parents could save a lot of money, right? We're going to fast at this wedding. There's no, there's no food here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's just the opposite, right? In fact, that's, that's exactly what Jesus pointed out. If, if the wedding guests, who, well, first of all, who is the bridegroom in this case? Jesus is the bridegroom. And who are the guests at the, at the wedding celebration? Yeah, the disciples, the followers, those, okay. And he's saying, while the bridegroom, in other words, while I am with them, is, are, is it appropriate? Is, is it, uh, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And notice what Jesus also hints at here. He says that... The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. What's he hinting at is going to be coming here? Isn't that kind of a prediction of what? His death, right? Yeah. And, and the suffering that will occur. And ultimately, he will go away from them after the, after the ascension, of course. So the bridegroom is with them. Why have them fast now is basically what he's saying. So it's kind of a, you know, there's no need for fasting. In fact, there should be celebration. There should be joy when the bridegroom is with them now, like we would have at a wedding. Now, this next, he tells them a parable here, and this is a little hard to follow, but it's going to be a contrast. He's going to say a couple different things here. A contrast between the new, which would be Jesus, and the Jesus of compassion and love. There's going to be a contrast he's going to set up here between himself and the old, which will be the Pharisees, and rules and regulations and rigidity and barriers. So, verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. All right, so let's stop with that one. Kind of get what he's doing here. You don't take 
if you've got an old garment and uh, say you've got a hole in the sleeve, you don't take a new garment, rip off a section, and stick it on, stick it on the uh, sleeve here to fix it. Why not? You ruin the new garment and it's not going to what? Match, right? Not going to match. Even if it's the same sort of garment because the old one would have faded. It's not going to match, okay? So again, incompatibility with new and old. Jesus knew they old, okay? Now this next one, I gotta, we'll explain this one. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Okay, so the wineskins were made out of uh, like hides, I guess, and what happens with an old one? It gets kind of brittle and dried, okay? And when you put new wine into the old wineskin, guess what's still going on with that new wine? Fermentation, which produces gas, which expands the wineskin, and what does it do? Blows, right? So nobody does that. And the people knew that. No, you don't do that. You're going to have trouble if you do that. So Jesus is just pointing out again the incompatibility with the new and the old. And the old can't seem to accept the new. In this case, Jesus. Okay? Then, here's a zinger that they probably didn't get. But, uh, verse 39, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Kind of zinged them there. Who's the old wine? They are, right? He's, a, he's basically saying, if you drink old wine, aged wine, which, again, nobody would deny, the aged wine is usually much better than new wine, especially if it's red wine. And he's saying, if, if you drink the old wine, everybody prefers the old wine. He's saying to them, basically, you just prefer the old ways, the way it's always been, and cannot take the new, right? And it, it's almost saying... It's almost saying, in effect, to them, you're just not going to do it. You're not going to accept the new. You're just not going to do it. And they're more comfortable just drinking the old. Okay? All right? So he is seeing, he is sensing this opposition that is, is coming up more and more and more. He's not backing down from it. He is taking it on. And he's basically trying to get them to see that, that they're just the old guard that can't, unfortunately, see the Messiah has actually come. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Any questions or comments on that section? The incompatibility of the old and the new, the garments, the wineskins. The, the King James says what? Bottles. You're kidding. The King James Version says bottles? Wow. No, wineskins. Yeah. You could say, I think you could say that you're going to still have the same experience. There's going to be fermentation and it's going to, you know, come out of, come out of the, yeah, out of the bottle. But no, it should be wine skins. Yeah. Skins, yes. Okay, they, so they even in the King James say at the bottom they were skins. Boy, I don't know why they didn't just say skins in the text. All right, let's go on to chapter 6. And here we're going to have Sabbath day stuff. There's going to be two Sabbaths. If you look up at verse 1, on a Sabbath, and then look down at verse 6, on another Sabbath. And so we're going to have two things happening on Sabbath days here that are going to cause the Pharisees, again, to have this 
great confrontation when it comes to what Jesus does. Now, before we get into this, the Sabbath day in the Old Testament was what day? Saturday. Actually, it was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, right? You remember on, on Good Friday, they had to stop the embalming process with Jesus' body, right? Because the sun, it was sundown, and they had to stop that. That would be work, plus they'd be coming in contact with dead body on the Sabbath day, for a lot of reasons. So sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, okay? It, it actually was the seventh day. Creation began. Creation went six days. And the seventh day, as God rested, so did his people rest. And he commanded his people to rest. Now let me ask you this. Is the purpose of the Sabbath day just to rest from work? Is that, is that the sole complete end-all purpose of the Sabbath day. Sleep in, get up, read the Wall Street Journal. No. It was not only, it was resting from your work, but in order to do what? Focus on your relationship with God, right? And just think, if we, well, let me, let me do this first. So why is it then, if it was Saturday in the Old Testament, why is it that we're here on a Sunday morning as Christians? Christians changed it early on because of what reason? To Sunday. Yeah, the day that Christ rose from the dead. The day that a new creation was started. The eighth day. The resurrection from the dead. And a new creation has begun now in Christ. All things have been made new. And that's why the Christians since the resurrection, have been worshiping on Sundays, okay? And again, if we could just get that idea across, just think about this. If we did not have a Sabbath day, uh, let's say we were seven days a week, you know, we're working, and I, I guess in some ways we have really come to that, haven't we? I mean, there, there's some people that unfortunately are working all kinds of hours seven days a week. But if you think about it, if we didn't have a day set aside, would we ever, would we, it would be so difficult to have that time to focus on our relationship with God. Now, it does not have to be a Sunday that we take that time. We have Saturday services here. We have midweek services during Lent and Advent. But the whole idea behind it is to rest from your work, to pull away from your everyday endeavors and have that time in worship, and especially as Lutherans, we emphasize receiving the gifts God has for us in his word and his sacrament, right? In the uh, third commandment, which actually uh, Dr. Beaker quoted in the sermon today, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, remember Luther's explanation. Does he mention any day of the week in his explanation? Does he mention Sunday or, you know, you, you better be in church on Sunday? No. It's we should fear and love God that we do not, what, despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. There's nothing mentioned about any day of the week in there. Okay? And so that's the whole idea behind the Sabbath day. But where do we find, as Christians, where do we find the ultimate rest? In whom? In Jesus. Yeah, in Jesus. The ultimate rest for us is there. The rest that comes from knowing sins are forgiven, and all of my relationship with God is right and good through him. 
He is the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath day. Okay? Now, let me show you. I wasn't going to do this, but let's, let's do this. Let's turn to Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, because I want to, this is kind of, maybe this is important to talk about right now. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So it says there, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So notice there, Paul is saying, don't let anybody pass judgment on you about, first of all, the food, what food you eat, and where, where would possibly people be passing judgment on others about food? That they're not keeping what? The Old Testament Jewish dietary laws, right? And Paul says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you about that. A new moon festival was exactly that. It was a Jewish festival that every time there was a new moon, they had that festival. Or a Sabbath, he says. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. I had a, this, this happened accidentally a couple years ago, and it's a perfect explanation of this verse. I'm coming around the corner. Let's just say this is the, the wall over here of the ministry building, okay? And the sun is to my back, and I'm coming around the corner, and I'm going to make a right and go this way, and there's another person coming this way. And they stopped right there because what? They saw my shadow. And they knew if we would have kept going, we would have collided. But did they, has she seen me, had she seen me yet? She had just seen my shadow. Then I finally came here and she saw me. And she said, I saw your shadow, so I stopped. It's just like this with all the sacrifices, all the festivals, even all the Sabbath days, they are just a shadow of Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. He is our ultimate rest. He is the one through whom we have sins forgiven and feast eternally in the marriage feast of the Lamb and His kingdom, which has no end. Okay? So that's why we don't make big deals about food that we eat. We don't subscribe to the Old Testament dietary laws any longer. There's also what happened with Apollos in the book of Acts, but that's a whole other story. But you see here, when we're on the Sabbath day with these Pharisees, they were so fixated on that, they actually believed, some of them actually believed, that if every Jew would keep the Sabbath day perfectly, God would send the Messiah. God would be so, uh, so impressed, he would send the Messiah. What's the, what's the terribly ironic thing here? He's right in front of them. <laughs> He's right in front of them. And they're going to criticize him because of the Sabbath. All right, so let's get into this. On a Sabbath, we don't know exactly which one here, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now, because of the, the fact that the grain would be ripe at this time, we think this was around April, late April, early May, somewhere in that time, and Luke makes a point of saying that the disciples not only picked the grain, but rubbed it in their hands. The reason he's making this point, we think, is because the Pharisees, now are going to say, that, remember now, this is a Sabbath day. They're going to say that picking the grain was harvesting, 
on the Sabbath, which you can't do. That's work. And what do you think they would say rubbing it in your hands is? Threshing the grain. That's exactly right. That's wrong, too. You can't do that on the Sabbath day. And see, this, this was allowed. Uh, we won't look at it, but Deuteronomy 23, 25 on the Old Testament says that if you're in your neighbor's field, you can eat some of the grain. There's only one prohibition. You can't take a sickle to it. In other words, you can't go in there and really start harvesting yourself, but you can pick some of the grain and eat it. So they were not, the Pharisees here are not contesting the fact that you could do this. They're contesting the fact that it was done on the Sabbath day. And they, if you were to ask them, probably would have said they should have done it earlier so they wouldn't have to do this on the Sabbath day. Okay? Now, uh, but some of the Pharisees, okay, uh, verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And again, the you is plural here. So they're talking to Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this takes a little bit of explanation. The bread of the presence is also called the showbread, S-H-E-W bread. Have you ever heard of that? It was in the temple, and before that it was in the tabernacle. It was in the holy place, not in the most holy place. It was on a table, like, almost the size of a coffee table, that had the golden lampstands on it, and there were two stacks of bread, one at one end and one at the other. And there were six cakes of bread on each one of these stacks. They were to go, and they were replaced every morning of, every Sabbath day morning. So once a week, they were replaced. And the legend has it that they never spoiled. They were just as fresh on the seventh day as they were when they were placed out. And these, these showbread, these, these bread of the presence, symbolized for God's people, number one, his presence with them, but number two, the fact that he was there to provide for all of their daily physical needs. The big thing was, who was supposed to eat that bread after it was taken down and replaced? The priests were supposed to consume it. And there is a, Jesus makes a reference here, we won't look at it, to 1 Samuel 21, where David and his men are out, and they're really hungry. They're just starving. And David goes into the holy place and takes the showbread and gives it to his men, and they consume the showbread, and, uh, which was they weren't supposed to do. It was unlawful for them to do. So if David did that, what's, G what's the point Jesus is trying to get across to these Pharisees who are all worried that his disciples are eating some grain out in a field on the Sabbath day? What? Yeah, someone greater than David is here. And in fact, he says at the end of it that Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and they, he's talking about himself there. But instead of worrying about rules and regulations that they had built up on the Sabbath day, which again was their rules and regulations, what should their stance be? I didn't hear, okay, judge not, lest ye be judged, okay. And, and compassion and, and, and love toward others. And he's basically saying, hey, 
This isn't the first time in history this happened. In fact, something a lot worse than this happened <laughs> back with David, right? If you think this is bad, look at what David did back there. And there was no, no recrimination. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, but Jesus, remember, they're eating, they're eating uh, grain out in the field. So, but anyway, they were trying to get him again on the rules and the regulations about Sabbath day in this case, okay? And again, notice there, Jesus makes it clear that he is Lord over the Sabbath day, okay? Let's do one more. I think we can get this one more in. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, we don't know again, this just another time, another Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue, was this Capernaum, we're not sure, and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. We don't know, it seems like from the original language, that it just hung there. We don't know if it, you know, what the exact medical condition was, but it was useless. He, he couldn't use his right hand, whatever the condition was, okay? And this guy was there. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So what are they doing? They're just waiting, aren't they? They're sensing, you know, this might happen. He might do it. And if he does, we're going to get him. And, and the word for that they, they might find a reason to accuse him, that word for accuse there is actually a legal term. It, it means to bring charges against somebody. So they are already, even at this early point, thinking about how they can bring charges, of course, religious charges, against Jesus, okay? And so going on here, uh, verse, let's see, 8. But he, Jesus, knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. So, and basically, so all could see. You know, Jesus is not going to let him just sit by. He puts him standing right there so everybody could see what's going to happen here, okay? Verse 8. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Well, obviously, it's wrong to destroy life or to do evil. But then the question remains, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And they couldn't, apparently couldn't answer him. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. How should, how should the Pharisees have reacted when this guy's hand is healed and he can now use his hand? He's never, we don't think, ever been able to use it. How should they have reacted? Praise God, yeah, praise God that, that this man is healed. But instead, again, of dealing with compassion for people and rejoicing with people, they're all worried about rules and regulations that they, that they made up, that they comprised, composed, concerning the Sabbath. That's all they can think about. And, you know, I guess we have to be careful with that as well. We, we, only can, we should only be going as far as God's word says, right? And nothing further. There are a lot of things that, that are traditions or things that we do that are not either prescribed by God, commanded by God, nor are they rejected by God, you know? And it's interesting that 
Sometimes churches will get into some of the biggest conflicts over things that are not, they're, they're not spoken of in the Word of God, right? Like what color the carpet is, or what, color, what time the service is going to be, or, you know, this or that can all of a sudden cause a big uproar. So we're all we're worried about rules and regulations about things while sinners are dying, right? And, and we've got to be careful. I mean, it's easy for us to sit back and say, oh, those Pharisees. But, you know, we've got to be careful that, that we don't slip into that same kind of thinking, that, that we're better than they are, and, you know, just, just focus on rules and regulations that are not either prescribed or rejected in Scripture. And that's certainly what the Pharisees uh, were doing. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Any uh, questions, comments? Yes. Yes. Yes, uh, good point. The early Christian church, and you can see this in the book of Acts very, very clearly. The early Christian church was really struggling with, do I, is it faith in Jesus Christ plus keeping the law, including all the dietary laws, circumcision, all the way up and down, or is it just faith in Jesus Christ? And again, Acts 15 is the big church council where they, they settle that. But yeah, this was truly a huge, and then Paul, in, you know, in the letter to the Galatians, same thing. They were being infiltrated by people saying, it's not just faith in Christ, it's faith in Christ plus you've got to keep the law. And they even accused Paul of trying to make it too easy. You know? And uh, we're, the, we're the real ones because we're saying you've got to keep the law. We're going to keep it tough. And we're saying no. It's simply by faith in Jesus Christ. Good point. Anything else? All right, we will close up then. Let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.